The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, it is time, if you're interested in subscribing to Chen, to sign up because he accepts new subscribers only during the first uh, two weeks of uh, the new calendar quarter. Uh, so uh, Chen will be accepting a limited number of new subscribers during that time. He's had a stellar track record. Certainly, uh, Chen Lin is a very ingenious investor who's done extremely well in the past, and you might want to consider signing up for his, uh, for his letter. To do so, you need to go to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com uh, put your name on that list and then uh, you will be contacted immediately you can also sign up for my newsletter Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks at miningstocks.com want to thank each of you for listening making this one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel and I want to encourage you each to send in your questions comments criticisms or praises to questions for Taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four Taylor T-A-Y-L-O-R at gmail.com and you can follow me uh, under Twitter under the handle J Taylor Media. Um, I do want to also thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Caden Resources, Columbus Gold Corp, Wellgreen Platinum, Cornerstone Capital, and Avino Gold, uh, Silver and Gold Mines. And we do want to welcome Avino as a new sponsor for this show. Avino is producing silver profitably in Mexico. Uh, it's a uh, cash cost of production. Uh, is around $8.67. It expects to produce around close to 2 million ounces this year, I believe, and will be increasing that to 3 and 4 million ounces over the next couple of years. We will have David Wolfen on this show sometime in the next few weeks to talk about Avino. They're operating in Mexico. They also have a gold mining operation uh, known as the Braylorn uh, that they've just acquired in British Columbia as well. Um, so we look forward to talking to uh, David Wolfen in the near future. 
The uh, equity markets are certainly getting hit very hard again today as I look at the uh, the Dow is down 188 points. The S&P is down 19.30. And I uh, have been following the work of Dr. Robert McHugh very closely, and he has been issuing some very uh, significant warnings uh, about, uh, from his technical perspective, uh, from many different technical indicators that are suggesting that this equity market could be very, uh, very, very vulnerable. And now, uh, today, indeed, we're looking at a, a, another significant downturn. And uh, I caught Art Cashin earlier today talking about 1947 as being a very key uh, level that needs to hold on the S&P. And right now, as I'm speaking to you, the S&P 500 is at 1944.58. Art sees a possible domino progression on the downside in the equity markets if that uh, proves to be true. We're certainly not cheering for that, but on the other hand, uh, we do want to face economic reality, and that's what we're going to try to do on today's show. I've titled today's show, Hong Kong Unrest, Currency Wars, and Gold. Well, while things do seem to have calmed down a bit in Hong Kong over the weekend, can there be any doubt uh, but that currency wars are heating up and that in order to hide the lies of the ruling elite, the price of gold, as well as silver and other uh, items have to be suppressed. Certainly interest rates are being uh, manipulated downward and uh, the price of gold too. And uh, we're going to be talking to David Jensen in just a few minutes and, and try to get some insights into the significance and the importance of pushing the price of gold down in order to uh, to manipulate the rest of the economy or try to uh, to program by the powers that be, the Keynesians, uh, to try to stimulate demand. Why is it so important that gold be uh, knocked down? And I think David uh, will probably have some insights into that. Of course, none other than Alan Greenspan understood it very well, uh, as well as some other high-level people understood why the price of gold needs to be knocked down, needs to be suppressed in order to get, uh, in order to keep interest rates low, in order to try to stimulate, as Keynes said, the demand side of the economy. We're going to talk uh, to David Jensen and just a little bit about that. The second hour of today's show, Dr. Peter Treadway, who is a money manager, lives in Hong Kong, uh, works in Hong Kong. He's also spends some time in the United States. He's an American, but he has spent more of, most of his adult life in recent years, at least in Hong Kong. Dr. Peter Treadway, I think, has some very interesting insights into the culture in Hong Kong versus mainland China and uh, the significance of what's going on there, the recent protests, which have seemed to die down, but Really, uh, has anything really changed? And we'll talk to Dr. Peter Treadway about that. Also, Daniel McAdams will be coming on with me in the second half of today's show uh, to talk also about uh, about geopolitical events and how they tie in with the rest of the things that we're talking about uh, on this show. And we're also at about half past the hour today, the first hour today, we'll be talking to John Rubino. And John is talking about the quote-unquote strong dollar. Well, the dollar has really risen relative to other fiat currencies in recent times. What does that mean for the stock market? What does that mean for our economy overall? And how sustainable is it? And how important is it that the price of gold be uh, manipulated in order to keep uh, in order to keep the game going uh, that the policymakers are hoping uh, to keep going their way. So we do have a lot of very interesting things and important things to talk about. I'm not going to uh, spend any more time uh, talking on my own here. I do want to go to commercial break immediately so we can come back to David Jensen. David is normally, most often, on the second hour of this of this uh, show. But I did want to have David come into the first hour so those of you who may not always listen to the second hour might get a chance to hear some of his views, which I think are very important. David is on and uh, on a regular basis because I hold his views to be 
very significant. He works very hard at understanding what's really going on in the precious metals markets and in the equity markets uh, in the economy overall. And he's very concerned also with geopolitics, as Daniel McAdams is. Daniel provides an excellent uh, insights, I think, into what is actually going on on a on a country by country basis, and David brings in the sort of a bigger picture geopolitics uh, and the importance of geopolitics combined with monetary policy and how the two are so intricately woven together. But we do want to go to commercial break now, so uh, let's do that. And when we come back, we will talk to David Jensen. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Production of platinum and palladium is heavily concentrated in South Africa and Russia. Rising costs, labor strife, and ever more challenging underground mining conditions have led to serious and ongoing supply deficits. New sources of PGMs from stable regions are needed to meet the increasing global demand. Well Green Platinum's PGM Nickel Project in Canada's Yukon hosts one of the world's largest concentrations of platinum, palladium, and nickel. Excellent management, favorable jurisdiction, strong supply and demand fundamentals, and near-term catalysts. Visit wellgreenplatinum.com to learn more. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me David Jensen. David's been with me most often on the second hour of this show, but uh, we've moved him up here to the first hour because I want a lot of you to hear what David has to say, and it seemed to work very well, his views and what he talks about with John Rubino, who will be joining us at about half past the hour, uh, the first hour of today's show. David is a professional engineer, and he holds a law degree and an MBA, and he has worked as an engineer in the aerospace industry. Uh, and uh, his MBA was really focused on logistics and supply chain management, I think very uh, important discipline that David brings into the equation. Realizing that the establishment is using Keynesian economics to lead the masses 
astray. David really discovered free market Austrian economics, and, uh, and that really sort of changed his focus on the world and, and how he views things and certainly what he has to tell us today. But he has a very practical application uh, uh, for, for his views as well, uh, given his uh, experience as an engineer and in the mining industry. He also was a vice president of corporate development at Western Copper Corp, and most recently was the president and chief operating officer of Skyline uh, Gold. David currently heads up a private mining company, uh, but I really do enjoy having him on the show on a regular basis because of, of what he brings, the big picture view of the world, uh, his world view, I think, which is spot on, very accurate with mine and uh, as an Austrian uh, advocate of Austrian economics, free market economics, as opposed to uh, the interference in the uh, economy and in markets and the interference in our lives, quite frankly, that uh, is taking away our liberty and our freedom. So that's really the commonality that David and I share. And so welcome, David. I'm really glad to have you with me again. Good morning, Jay. Really, always, always good to talk to you. And I, I first want to, you and I were talking a little bit earlier today uh, about the lack of economic growth. Now, when I, certainly not the picture I get when I turn on CNBC, uh, I think it was uh, the fellow from Goldman Sachs this morning was talking about how we're actually doing pretty good and how the United States is really the engine that's pulling the rest of the world and helping uh, to pull the rest of the world out of its mire and its muck. But I don't think that you see it that way. Can you tell us to what extent you think the U.S. is enjoying any kind of economic recovery at all? Do you buy that? Uh, it depends what your measures are. If you look at uh, real inflation um, as measured uh, by the Bureau of Labor Statistics historically, um, you know, uh, the growth that's supposed to be there is basically in inflated dollars in real terms. Uh, if we look at uh, actual growth of, of real uh, productive output, we are, we are not seeing growth. But even using the numbers that the BLS produces today, um, you know, the Goldman Sachs uh, index of leading indicators is showing a, a, a return to a slowdown in the economy and uh, heading towards a recession again. So um, I don't know where Goldman Sachs gets that from, but we're, you know, we're seeing also guidance uh, um, earnings guidance now has been reduced by about fifty percent uh, for the for the uh, coming quarter. So, mm. um, you know, I'm not seeing the growth and the acceleration out there. There's some modest uh, growth if you use the distorted measures uh, of the BLS, which underestimates inflation. But in real terms, no, I don't see the growth up there, Jay. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it, it's really that's I'm with you on that, and and certainly use John Williams' numbers of uh, what is really costing to keep a family of four alive, and it certainly doesn't seem to be there either. But in any event. Uh, I want to focus on why you think that is true. And you and I were talking earlier today, and you sort of refresh my memory on the importance of price discovery in the capital markets. David Stockman has talked about this very eloquently on this show and elsewhere as well. Uh, tell our listeners why it's important for the interest rates to go to some free market level as opposed to some dictated level by the, by the gods of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, well, especially in, in a, a time that we're in right now, where we're coming uh, on the heels of a of a credit binge and, and a, a bubble economy, um, the the economy uh, globally is really saturated with debt. And what higher interest rates do is that they clear excess debt from the economy first of all, um, and then and then secondly, uh, with higher interest rates, um, only the highly productive enterprises can pass that higher interest rate hurdle. And um, uh, you know the, the Austrian school has uh, really focuses on this in terms of what they call time preference. Um, but higher interest rates focus uh, 
the economy and, and the economy's productive output on, on enterprise that can give a near-term uh, adequate uh, return. Uh, if you have low interest rates, everything gets financed. And some things that may not produce anything for 10 years, if you're running uh, essentially negative interest rates, which we are right now in, in real terms, um, they just go on and on, and you don't get that stimulus to the economy from new real enterprise. Uh, you just continue to finance old, malstructured, and speculative enterprise. Mm-hmm. So you have malinvestment, and what you're really doing is encouraging capital to flow into non-productive areas or areas that are less productive than they would flow into if they were given higher rates. Uh, if if capital, so if I'm if I'm sitting with excess cash, uh, I have some savings and I have some capital. Uh, I'm encouraged to go for the highest risk, uh, well, not the highest return relative to risk that is that suits my preference, of course, over time. And what you're saying is the the distortion of the interest rate markets and the uh, suppression of interest rates is not allowing that efficient flow of capital to take place, right? Yeah, and and industry as well is not uh, compelled to focus on only those. Uh, developments which give a high rate of return so everything mm-hmm. gets financed uh, speculative and unproductive enterprise as well as the valuable things mm-hmm. and higher interest rates bring, bring a, a, a discipline to the market and focus uh, the attention of everybody on those things that can only uh, meet the highest standards right and you mentioned time preference of money so we're really looking at the present value so if I'm looking at a mining company I'd like to see that company get its cash flow early on in the project so you're looking for uh, the time value of money is a very important concept here too, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. And it, it's really being short-circuited with low interest rates. Okay, so the conventional wisdom though, Keynesian, the Keynesian model suggests that what we really need to do is to get demand going. We need to have uh, excessive amounts of government spending. We need to run big deficits. Uh, we need to have easy money. Uh, and mm-hmm. so those deficits can be financed. We want to have low interest rates so that people will go out and borrow and buy houses and buy c- cars and other consumer items. Why doesn't that work? Well, we've just been through that period now for the last several decades. And um, the Wall Street Journal in, in 2013 estimated that uh, global debt was about $223 trillion dollars. Um, or 313% of the global GDP. So we've been through that credit binge. And the problem that we have now with you know, 313% plus uh, of GDP plus uh, outstanding debt is the fact that the, historically the, the, uh, the balance point or the equilibrium point for uh, carrying debt uh, globally has typically been about 150% of GDP. So what we have now is is more than double the stable uh, rate of indebtedness uh, globally, and it leaves us with uh, about $115 trillion uh, measured in 2013 of excess debt globally and about $32 trillion in the United States of excess uh, outstanding debt. And that is a burden on the economy, and uh, you know it really needs to be cleared um, so that the economy can function once again. And it, this is what is dragging us down. It's what dragged Japan down. And they've gone through this easy money cycle and, and printing of money, and it, it does not work. It does not solve the problem. The problem is the outstanding debt. It needs to be cleared, and interest rates have to be able to rise to refocus the economy once again. It doesn't solve the problem, but it certainly would uh, if we were to allow the markets to go back to where they should be, the free markets, which never should have been never should have been interfered with to start with. It would, though, you would agree, I think, be a very painful process. 
Well, the, the major obstacle is uh, the two big to fail banks. Um, they're levered about uh, 15, uh, 15 to 1. And if you have to clear out $30 trillion of excess debt in the U.S. Uh, and $114 trillion globally, um, what it's going to do is going to impact the balance sheet of the two big to fail banks. Uh, and with this uh, uh, 15 to 1 leverage that's in the banks, they just need to lose. Uh, uh, you know, a fraction of the outstanding value of their assets, and they're basically gone. So, what what we're saying here is that if we had to have an organized write down um, of the uh, global uh, debt, that there would have to be a restructuring of the banking sector, and, and basically the two big to fail banks who really uh, control things uh, currently uh, would basically become histor- historical artifacts. Yeah, you know, um, you and I understand very well, but I think. Most people, even Peter Treadway, who I talked to in the second hour of today's show, I don't believe really understand it. Uh, Peter is really a great guy. He's a, a he's a mainstream economist, a, a monetarist essentially. But basically, the notion that there is some relationship of gold to the uh, to the capital markets is 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 not something that most people think of, including uh, well trained um, PhD economists from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. Now. Larry Summers, though, understood it. There's a connection. Alan Greenspan, first of all, understood that in order to uh, have a, uh, a command economy, in order to have a socialist or fascist economy that's run by, uh, by government, not by the people, that, um, th- that essentially you had to suppress the price of gold. But Larry Summers understood very well that the price of gold needed to be suppressed uh, in order, if you were going to try to stimulate the economy with interest rates, with low interest rates, can you explain that connection for our listeners? Yeah, well, Larry Summers wrote a paper in the in the late 1980s, I think 1988, um, along with a cohort uh, named Barsky, uh, regarding uh, Gibson's paradox. And it was uh, Gibson's paradox was a uh, market artifact which had been observed over centuries. Um, and it really uh, led to the understanding that what happens is that with rising gold prices, uh, you ultimately have rising interest rates. So what people are doing when they're buying into gold is uh, with a fiat currency is they're buying gold and, and selling dollars. And they would also then be selling bonds if they didn't want to hold dollars if the interest rates weren't high enough. So to attract individuals out of gold back into bonds again into the in, into the debt markets, interest rates have to bu- have to rise. So that's that's about as distilled a, a description as I can give. But basically, Gibson's paradox says rising gold prices are associated with rising interest rates and. You know, there seems to be an understanding of that um, uh, in the capital markets because, uh, you know, from Dimitri Speck's work, we can see that in the early 1990s, statistically, there was a deviation of the trading in the COMEX um, with the price of gold in other markets. And uh, although even before this, in the late 1980s, we did have the introduction of unallocated gold in London, which allowed them to basically create virtual gold as well. But it was really the combination of the virtual gold trading in London, which is 85% of the global gold trade, um, along with the trading, uh, you know, the structured trading in, on the COMEX, which we could see there was a deviation and, and a drill down in the gold price uh, every day when the COMEX would start up. Mm-hmm. 
So you, you talk to me frequently about uh, the disconnect between the physical markets and, uh, in, uh, and a newly, uh, you know, really the, a rising physical exchange, physical market exchange for gold and silver and platinum and palladium in Shanghai. Uh, for those of us, uh, the people that listen to the first hour of the show, and if those that might not listen to the second hour, maybe go over a little bit the, the statistics. Uh, I believe something like 100 to 1 in terms of uh, paper gold to real gold gets traded in uh, on the LMBA and the, and in New York. Is that right? Those are the estimates. Uh, nobody knows for sure because the LMBA doesn't disclose uh, what. Uh, okay. Well, um, let's see. Maybe we've lost David for some reason. Uh, he's dropped. Okay. Well, maybe he'll call in. Can we take a commercial break now, and he can come back on? Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel joint venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, we had a little bit of a, of a technical glitch there uh, with uh, David uh, Jensen up in British Columbia, but he's back. And, and so we want to get the last part of what David had to say. And, and David, when we, uh, when we dropped off there, uh, I was asking you about this ratio, the sort of ratio that we're yeah. seeing the paper markets, which you call essentially virtual markets, the COMEX and the LBMA, have really little to do with what the real price for the physical metal is. Can you just talk a little bit more about that for the benefit of those who may not hear you on a regular basis in the second hour of our show? Yeah, well, the London market trades about 200 million ounces a day um, on average on a monthly basis currently. 
And that's about 600 times the daily gold production uh, worldwide from all the world's uh, gold mines. Wow. So with that tremendous ratio, uh, it's visible that they're not actually trading gold, but they're trading these unallocated or virtual gold instruments, which are, mm-hmm. people say they're a 100 to 1 ratio to, uh, to gold, to, to physical gold. But in reality, they're just virtual instruments that are trading, that are really the lion's share of the gold trading out there. And so when you have this tremendous supply of virtual gold to the market, you're essentially fixing the price for the Western investors who are price followers. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the East, where they just want the physical metal, they just buy uh, hand over fist. And so what we're seeing is um, between the LBMA and the COMEX uh, trading virtual gold uh, and containing the price uh, with, a, with a form of price control that the uh, inventory is being swept off the global stage uh, from the West uh, to other points of uh, in Switzerland and into uh, Asia as well, where the physical metal itself is valued. And and that's that's the real problem that we have today is that the price cannot run it cannot bring proper gold uh, price discovery to the markets, and as a consequence, ultimately we know with price controls that we're going to have empty shelves, and and that appears to be coming now with the, especially with the new Chinese uh, Shanghai uh, Free Trade Zone Gold Exchange opening up. Um, the Chinese consumption of gold is estimated over 3,000 tons a year when you include uh, the estimate of what the government is buying, and, and that compares to a global uh, mine production of about 2,800 tons a year. So they're over the world's gold production on an annual basis in Chinese consumption alone, and there's India and Switzerland and all the other markets as well that are consuming the metal. Yeah, well, so what do you say to to mainstream economists, mainstream people, most of the masses of people who say, so what? We've got the dollar. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, who needs who needs gold? I mean, to most people, including my friend Dr. Peter Treadway, he doesn't yeah. see the connection. Yeah. What? Why does this matter? Why are we harping about this on this show? Why do Why do you think it's important? Well, it matters because of how distorted the credit markets become. Because you basically shut off the warning indicator, which gold is, mm-hmm. and it's it's a prevention mechanism which stops excess credit from being created. Now we have. Uh, this global $220 trillion of outstanding debt, and we can see the impact it's having globally on the markets. And it's been announced today that, that QE won't be effective for Europe. Uh, we've seen it hasn't been effective in the United States except to uh, drive the market values up in the stock market, but it does nothing for the economy. And we can see what this money printing has done in Japan, basically, with a, with a uh, quite a strong downturn now in the GDP in Japan. And we're seeing a rapid devaluation in the Japanese currency as well. So it has only bad consequences. It, 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 it satiates the banks and helps to buoy their, their balance sheets for a period, but has a terrible impact on the real economy and on, on the citizens of our countries. Yeah, so uh, maybe we just sort of sum up here what we've talked about, the importance and the reason it should matter to the Ph.D. economists from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale is that by uh, suppressing uh, the gold price, you are enabling endless amounts of credit to be issued, which is then leading to malinvestment, right. which means that, that savings is going into areas and uh, uh, capital is flowing into areas that don't produce the cash flows to service the debt from which that money was manufactured. Uh, and so what we really need to do is let the gold price go where it will go, where, where the natural market forces would take it, which would then would force the interest rates to some level. Am I, do I have that right? Yes. I mean, you have a distorted economy, and then you, on top of the distorted economy, you have the, really the twin sister of it, which is government deficit spending. And when you, do, when you have those two together, the, the economy is malfunctioning, 
and the governments respond by printing money, and it leads in the end to basically uh, debt market collapse and economic. Uh, ultimately, when the uh, the debt market collapses, um, it impacts the economy and, and uh, uh, leads uh, ultimately to a a, uh, a breakdown in the value of of the fiat currency, which is uh, being utilized in the economy. Okay, so we have a brilliant economist, uh, unfortunately no longer with us, named John Exter. Yes. Uh, I met the man once in my life uh, at a coat check at a, at a conference. I'm sorry I didn't learn to know him more, uh, but he was brilliant. He was a Federal Reserve economist, member of the Council of Foreign Relations of all institutions. He was also a Harvard economist. Uh, he also uh, was in charge of the U.S. gold supply, and he was very much a deflationist. He saw all of this stuff that's going on as deflation, as deflation inflationary, all the debt because it could not be repaid, but John also saw gold would rise to extraordinary levels uh, in real terms. Can you talk to us a little bit about John Exter and how he saw what, I mean, how he foresaw what is going on now? I can't imagine he could have ever believed that we would go to trillions and trillions of dollars of excess money creation as we have without all hell breaking loose first, but Exter really believed that ultimately this game could not keep up and that the system would collapse, implode, if you will, into a deflationary implosion. But he saw that gold prices would rise to enormously high levels, did he not? Yes, uh, he has the uh, what we call Exter's uh, pyramid, and it's really an inverted pyramid of assets. And at the bottom is gold, and above that is, is currency, uh, and above that is our treasury notes, and then we get into more speculative things like uh, uh, equities and, and real estate. And at the very top, at the most uh, imbalanced point of the of the uh, inverted pyramid, there are derivatives. So John Exter warned us that uh, basically decoupling the currency, and he and he warned John or Paul Velker, pardon me, uh, directly uh, that this was going to lead to currency failure, decoupling the uh, monetary system from gold because of the excess uh, creation of money and debt. Um, so what happens in the end is that the, the enormous overhang of debt in the economy and the malstructured economy start to weigh down, and it starts to lead to a deflationary crash as all of these assets underperform. And there's a migration down through the pyramid from the widest point of derivatives um, down through equities, uh, and, and the migration continues down through, uh, uh, through treasuries and then into cash, and then finally at the bottom there's gold. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would expect to see rising interest rates some at some point as the economies continue to underperform with the loose monetary policy which is being run, and then a a, a concern about the bond market and movement into cash, then a rapid uh, increase in the value of gold. And the problem that we have, maybe in closing out, uh, uh, Jay, is the fact that the the markets, the gold markets, are not gold markets themselves. There's you know estimated one percent of the gold in them versus the open positions. And there's going to be an inability to move in, in, a, in a coherent manner, an ordered manner into the goal that is there for all the positions that are there even now in the best of times. When there's a mass movement into gold, it's going to create uh, basically a market dysfunction. And that's why we really need to have a structured uh, uh, a restructuring of the debt market and a revaluation of gold before uh, the gold markets are depleted and, and uh, the economies. Uh, uh, and the credit markets seize up themselves. 
Well, we can hope for that. I, I don't know what the chances are. I don't think they're very good, honestly, because I don't think that the powers that be, and you mentioned Paul Volcker, he had other masters that he served who weren't uh, very much interested in gold. Those masters wanted to see, they wanted to be uh, retain their legalized right of counterfeiting money, and so uh, the whole notion of allowing gold to become money again is, uh, is really uh, enemy number one as far as they're concerned. So my fear is that this thing is going to go until it collapses and then, of course, there could be an awful lot of other issues in society that would come to play. But, uh, but I want to thank you very much, uh, David, for your insights. I, I think that where you're letting off here with this inverted pyramid uh, and the notion that wealth flows down that pyramid and the next to the last thing that it goes to are treasuries, U.S. treasuries. And we're seeing that happen now. We're seeing a quote-unquote stronger dollar. Uh, and so that's what we want to talk to John Rubino on. And we've taken our, our commercial break, so I'm going to ask my engineer uh, to uh, call up John Rubino now in, uh, in the next moment or two so we can pick up with John. And John has talked about the strong dollar, the soaring dollar uh, debate you know, is it good? Is it bad? Uh, how is this going to play out? And I think we sort of touched on it with David. Uh, but if we can, uh, is John with me now? Hi, Jay. I'm on. Oh, good. Uh, welcome, John. It's good to have you with us. Well, folks, uh, John's been on with us several times before. Uh, he runs a very popular financial website called dollarcollapse.com, and he is the author, along with James Turk uh, of Gold Money, uh, The uh, Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from It. Uh, he's written and has been involved in writing various other books, too. He's a prolific writer. He writes for some established uh, financial magazines, uh, and uh, John is really one of my favorite people, a really good friend of mine. So, Welcome, John. Really good to have you with me again. Thanks for having me back, Jay. Always, always good to talk to you. I don't know uh, to what extent you heard any of David's remarks, uh, but I have a, an idea that 99% of what David believes you believe as well to a great extent. But I really want to talk to you about, we've seen this soaring dollar now, you know, and as I look at the screen, we're looking at an equity market, a Dow that's down over 200 points. The S&P has cut through 1947, which our cash and thought earlier today uh, was a very crucial level. And if it did not hold that we could be seeing a domino effect in the equity markets, we're certainly seeing some weakness in the equity markets. Now we've had this strong dollar, uh, so-called strong dollar. The dollar has gained against all of the other, most of the other currencies, specifically the euro and, and the yen, but the euro is the most heavily weighted uh, foreign currency in the index, in the dollar index. And we're just talking about John Exter's inverted pyramid, and we see that what happens when the system starts to implode, when debt cannot be repaid, we start to see uh, strength in the currency and in the treasury markets. Now, uh, of course, this is a global economy, and other currencies are weaker, perhaps, uh, but we do see this, the dollar going from, well, it, it was as low as about 70 in 2008. It's around 86 now. So that's, you know, about a 23% rise in the value of the dollar vis-a-vis -vis the other currencies in that uh, basket in the index. Um, so what are the factors, John? And uh, what, Maybe you could just sort of sum up the factors that are causing the dollar to gain vis-a-vis -vis other currencies. Well, the simple answer is that it's the dollar's turn in the currency war to be the strong currency. If you go back a few years, you, you see that um, the yen and the euro were relatively strong currencies. And look what's happening to their countries right now. You know, their strong currencies priced a lot of their exports out of the global markets. And now they're both dropping into recessions, which could be a lot more than recession for these guys. You know, when an over-indebted society stops growing, its debt load becomes overwhelming. 
mm-hmm. that's what those guys are looking at now. They're looking at um, very possibly deflationary depressions mm-hmm. if they don't actively liquefy the system. You know, so they're they're going to their own versions of quantitative easing now, yeah. in, in their own way. Because they have to. They have to flood the system with newly created currency. They have to force down the value of their currencies in order to survive. And so the dollar, because this is just all relative now, you know, from one, one currency to another, there's nothing real in, in the foreign exchange markets right now. The dollar has to go up if the euro and the yen are going to go down. So it's basically the dollar's turn. We, we've had a relatively weak currency for the last few years, and our economy is doing relatively well compared to these other economies. Mm-hmm. But now with the dollar going up again, we're going to have the same problem that um, Europe and Japan have right now, which is that our, our multinationals mm-hmm. are going to see a, a huge earnings hit because they sell stuff to the rest of the world, which means everything they sell that's priced in dollars is suddenly getting more and more expensive. And the euros and the yen that they're getting in return for the stuff they're selling are going down in value. So their earnings and the, are going to drop and their margins are going to contract. And um, that's going to be a big problem for them, especially with the stock market being priced for perfection. Mm-hmm. So the stock market getting extremely volatile right now is a function of the dollar suddenly getting very strong because all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's, it's introduced – an element of uncertainty. Now we just don't know what's going to happen to these multinationals. And, uh, and that's what's been driving the equity bull market for the last few years, the big blue chip stocks. So who knows now? Yeah, it's, indeed. I mean, uh, I, I think it was Art Cashin that said earlier today, I noticed he said that, uh, uh, that uh, like 50% of the earnings of the S&P come from overseas. And so now there's a very strong headwind. And he's noticing that the analysts are really starting to pare back their projections uh, for the next quarter's earnings. So uh, that headwind that we're talking about, but again, John, you know, the U.S. has done relatively well, as you say. Uh, it, I, I think, and as David and I discussed, and I think you're probably in agreement with, if you really looked at the real inflation rate, uh, we may not be growing at all. We may be still contracting, even though we may have done relatively better than we did at the bottom. We're still not, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're contracting at a less rapid rate. But using the government's inflation numbers, it's showing a slight growth. Uh, but again, we get back to the notion, as David was saying in the first uh, segment of this hour, that uh, GDP, uh, that, that debt to GDP in the United States is at enormously historical levels, levels that have, you know, that we've never seen before. We go back to 1934, I guess it was, or 32, at the bottom of the Depression, we got to something like 225%, but it's been over 300, 313%, something like that now, where the average was something like 150% of debt to GDP. So if the U.S. is the strongest economy going and the rest of the world is depending on us, now where it's time, it's our turn, as you say, to take the pain to allow the others to try to stimulate themselves from getting into, uh, from going over the cliff into this in, in deflationary implosion that John Exter warned us about, then the prospects don't look all that bright to me going forward. No. And uh, first of all, the, uh, the debt-to-GDP numbers that are officially reported um, vastly understate the problem because they don't include um, the the unfunded liabilities for Social Security and Medicare, yeah. which are real debts. You know that's that's the health care for retiring baby boomers. Go ahead and try mm-hmm. to take that away from us and see what happens. You know, yeah. you, you you can't just um, legislate that away. And it includes uh, or does not include derivatives, 
which are, are clearly a form of debt. They're a liability sure. that, uh, that are vastly understated on the balance sheets of the big banks. So you add those two together, and the, um, the debt-to-GDP number is surreal. You know, it's something out of the twilight zone. And you know, so, yeah, you know, we, we cannot continue, and, and we're increasing that number year after year. So we can't continue down this path. Mm-hmm. And what's happening now is we're trading off. You know, one, one country gets into trouble and then they, they pump out a lot of new currency and then it, the problem moves to another cur- country. And it, it's sort of a game of musical chairs in which mm-hmm. at some point the musical stop and the worst run country, the most overindebted country will be left out. They will collapse and pull down the rest of the, the system with them. And we don't know when that'll be, but well, obviously that's what's coming. Yeah, well, we started to see it happening with Greece. Uh, the United States went down 2008, 2009. It, uh, I think the whole global economy almost got away from the uh, from from uh, from the landlords of the world, uh, and they managed to stave it off. Um, who's to say they can't pull it off again? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, what they did was they they staved off a deflationary depression in 2009 by borrowing a whole bunch of new money. So if yeah. that was the problem back then, it's an even bigger problem now. But yeah, we because of this is completely uncharted territory. We've never had this much debt to deal with, and we've never had a world of central banks with unlimited printing presses before, mm-hmm. and and the willingness to use them um, in experimental ways. So we have no way of knowing based on history what the near-term future holds for us because we've never been here before. But the long-term future is highly predictable, and that is that this debt will get away from us at some point and things will spin out of control. But we can't know when, we can't know who's going to do it, you know, who, who's going to be the first to go and, and uh, in what order the dominoes eventually fall. But, yeah, you know, there, there, there's no way we get out of this without huge pain. And what we've done in the last five years is double the amount of pain that we're going to have to deal with eventually by effectively doubling the amount of debt in the global financial system. So um, the dollar and, and general, generally foreign exchange rate movements right now are, are one of the tools that governments are using to try to delay the inevitable. And, you know, you see from Europe and Japan right now that it could be that they're failing right this minute. You know, it could be that they can't do it anymore and that one of those systems will implode and take everything else down with them. Yeah, it seems almost like we're, uh, we're struggling in quicksand. We have to issue more debt to stay alive. We, and, and the more debt we issue, the, the deeper we uh, find ourselves mired in the, mm-hmm. in the quicksand. But um, you, you um, point out in, the, in an article that you wrote, uh, and again, uh, folks, you can read this if you uh, go to John's website, uh, dollarcollapse.com, that in fact that some people do benefit from a stronger dollar, for sure. I mean, our things should be somewhat in less expensive. Uh, and uh, there's an argument made uh, that seems to be probably uh, sort of the cheerleaders on Wall Street are making that this is actually going to help the stock market because uh, all this money will be flowing into the United States and into treasuries and into uh, the stock market. Well, there probably is some truth to that, but on balance, I, I take it you don't buy that. Well, currency fluctuations are a mixed bag because they, they help you a little and they hurt you a little, no matter what the currency is doing. You know, if your currency is going down, that's good for your exporting industries because it makes the stuff that they're trying to sell to the rest of the world cheaper. So in that sense, it's a good thing. Um, if your currency is going up, it makes the savings that you have accumulated more and more valuable. So that's a good thing. But currency fluctuations also hurt you. Uh, a strong currency hurts your export industries. 
and makes your debt load even more and more onerous while it's making your savings more valuable. So you, you mm-hmm. have to look at uh, the national balance sheet. Do you have more debt than savings? And that's what tells you whether a, a rising currency is a good thing or not. And in our case, we have vastly more debt than savings. So a, a rising currency is on balance a really bad thing, just as it was for Europe and Japan. And it'll have the same effect on us. It's going to hurt our export industries, which will slow down the economy. And it's going to make debts harder for everybody to pay back, which will dramatically slow down the economy. And, you know, the, the hand, relative handful of people who actually have savings in, in dollar bank accounts and stuff like that, uh, their savings will get a little more valuable. But it won't come close to offsetting the damage that a, a 10 or a 15% more valuable dollar will cause. Mm-hmm. So give us another year. And, and we will be dropping into um, Europe or Japan-style deflationary recession because uh, we, we owe too much, and a strong currency does that to countries that owe too much. So you're seeing the immediate effects right now on the stock market. Um, volatility has totally spiked yeah. in the last two weeks. Um, the, the average for the Dow right now, the average move, is, is approaching 140 points a day. Mm. Which is a really big move. That's that's kind of a notable news. They, or yeah. a notable new, uh, move. They'll they'll announce that on the financial news as the lead story, mm-hmm. if the market moves by that much. And we're getting it every day now, on average. And today it's an even bigger move. I, I think you said two hundred points, right? Yeah, down, the Dow's down. down. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so what that means is that uh, well, in the money bubble, James Turk and I use uh, an analogy of a spinning top for an over-indebted society that's getting ready to go. You know, you spin a top, and it spins really smoothly for a while, but then a wobble kind of sneaks Mm -hmm. into the the motion. And the wobble gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the the top just falls and flies off in a random direction. Well, that's what happens to an economy when it reaches a point where there's a phase change coming. And so this kind of volatility in the stock market is what it looks like when the system has, has been going in one direction for a long time, and now it's getting ready to go in another direction. We saw that in 2007. The stock market volatility went through the roof. You know, you have mm-hmm. regular two or 300-point moves in the mm-hmm. Dow. And we're, we're getting to that point again here. So we don't know for sure if this is going to be it. You can only know that in retrospect. But this is what it will look like when the system starts to roll over and we start to enter a bear market. We uh, talked to David Jensen uh, right before we spoke with you, and uh, David made the point, which seems very logical, and I believe I'm t- in total agreement with him, with him on that, and that is that, uh, that gold, the distortion of the gold markets plays a very vital role in enabling the interest rate markets to be distorted and manipulated by the policymakers. And David points out that by doing so, you have this horrible malinvestment. Not only are you creating huge amounts of debt as you try to stimulate this thing and drive interest rates lower, but you are channeling capital into areas of the economy that just absolutely don't produce anything. We can go back to the to the uh, to the uh, to the tech bubble in 2000, the housing bubble in uh, in the mid uh, 2000s, and you you see what happens uh, with malinvestment, enormous amounts of uh, malinvested capital. Do you share that notion that there's a connection between uh, the suppression of the gold markets? First of all, if you agree that there is suppression of the gold markets, and secondly, if there is, uh, that there would be a connection there. Oh, absolutely, gold because it's real money. Um, historically, it's been real money for 3,000 years. Um, is a signal, when gold goes up, it's signaling that in a fiat currency system, monetary policy is too easy, that you've got um, extremely low interest rates and maybe negative interest rates. That's when gold starts going up. So if, um, if your public policy objective 
is to run a negative interest rate regime. In other words, have super easy money for a really long time. Um, gold would stop you from doing that. And you, you have to suppress gold. You have to get in there and force its price down. Otherwise, everybody sees that as a signal and they, they behave accordingly and that short circuits your attempt to, um, to maintain extremely easy money for long periods of time. So yeah, governments since the 1960s have, have been manipulating the price of gold lower and they've been periodically succeeding and periodically failing. You know, in, in the 1960s, they had the London Gold Pool which was a secret system through which they depressed the price of gold. That failed when demand for gold went through the roof. And then we got the 1970s when uh, um, we, we had a huge monetary crisis because we couldn't control gold's signaling that interest rates were too low and monetary policy was too loose and, and gold went to 800 and some dollars an ounce. And we had to uh, then raise interest rates to double digits for five years. You know, Paul Volcker raised um, the Fed funds rate to above 10% until 1985. So we're we're heading into a time when the imbalances, or actually we're in a time already, when the imbalances are vastly bigger than they were back in the 60s and 70s. So it's more imperative today for governments to short-circuit the gold price signaling mechanism now than it was back then. And they've, they've been doing it with a vengeance. You know, they've been dumping thousands of tons of gold on the open market secretly over the last decade. Yeah. And a lot of that gold now is, is flowing east. You know, China and India and Russia are saying, oh, <clears throat> okay, you want to sell us artificially depressed gold? Cool, we'll take it. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're, it they're, thank you, thank yeah. you very much, they're yeah. saying. And, of course, you know, David was making the point, yes, we've had, uh, for sure, we've had these leases and other uh, manners of, of letting gold out of the Western coffers uh, into the markets and ultimately into Asia. But as David points out, we have this thing, uh, what he refers to as a, a essentially a virtual market where there's uh, huge amounts of uh, uh, contracts that are entered into by a couple of very major institutions. Only, only a couple of them would have the wherewithal to enter in and, and smack down the gold price uh, exactly at times when the market might start to say, I think I need some of that yellow metal as a protection, as some honest money. You know, we only have a couple of minutes to go here yet, but I, I just have to mention uh, or let you talk very briefly perhaps. There was a, a Raul uh, Elargi Mejir, I think, how do you pronounce his name, that you referred to in your write-up at, um, at dollarcollapse.com. Uh, he writes for something called the Automatic Earth. Can you uh, just share his views? Because they're v- rather cataclysmic. And uh, Can you just tell our listeners a little bit if you could share what Raul had to say? Yeah, the, the title of his article that I quoted was, U.S. dollar is about to inflict carnage all around the planet. And his take is that... Um, a rising dollar has a lot of negative effects around the world. And one of them is that it sucks the life out of the emerging markets. You know, they, they've been one of the few success stories in the global economy of the last five or seven years. And uh, now everybody wants to buy Japanese multinationals because they're the ones who are perceived to benefit from um, uh, falling yen and a rising dollar. So all mm-hmm. this hot money is flowing out of emerging markets and causing them to crash. And yeah. so in his take, that might be one of, the, um, uh, one of the catalysts for the next crisis when we see um, Thailand and, and maybe India and China, you know, all, the, all these countries who were success stories all of a sudden start having huge amounts of trouble because the hot money is flowing out, mm-hmm. whereas it flew in or it flowed in just lately. 
and, um, and, and bid up a lot of asset prices there and made, made it look like their economies were more healthy than they really were. Yeah. Um, so we should be watching the emerging markets, who are down dramatically today, by the way. Yeah. You know, the yeah. U.S. stock market falling as, as the yeah. dollar goes up, it's very bad for them. So yeah. um, he, he says that that's the beginning of the next crisis. Well, I, I must say that uh, in reading Dr. Robert McHugh, uh, his ominous warnings over the last couple of weeks that we are approaching something of a cataclysmic nature or with a high probability that that's the case uh, is certainly nothing that we cheer. But what we try to do on this show is to ferret out reality. And thank you very much, John, for being with us and uh, along with David for helping us do that. And, of course, we want to go to real money, gold, money uh, that cannot be destroyed by debt. It's nobody else's liability. So that's where we start, and uh, we talk about constantly on this show. I do want to thank you, John, for being with us. We are out of time. We'll do it again sometime in the near future, hopefully. Thanks, Jay. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, that's uh, all the time is, that we have for the first hour, but there is a second hour immediately at jtaylormedia.com. There I will be talking to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and also Dr. Peter Treadway will have some insights into the Hong Kong protests that have been going on. Uh, so please go immediately to jtaylormedia.com. I'll see you there. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 